Crash Course in History session number one. In Greek mythology, as with much of paganism, and all of you will forgive me because we did this tangent, I realized, in Sheer uh, earlier, but I'm going to repeat it to set the, to set the it's literally our Sheer, uh, but I'm going to set the, set the scene as we describe the Greek revolution. That's the one. That's the one, right? We're so all, as we're all, yeah, right. You're all, <laughs> this, all heard this just now, and it's Bernie. Was your fault? You asked the question before, I think. Bernie, you that led me to take out my notes and actually oh, yeah. read from them. Yeah, yeah. So fine, a little review. I, the truth is, is it's such a central kind of an insight that a little repetition doesn't doesn't hurt us. Um, gods are like men. That's what he said, right? In the Torah, men try to be like Hashem. Right? It's the exact opposite. In many, many ways. The, uh, and we said the illustration, Hu rachum, he's compassionate, af rachum. You too should be compassionate. And in the Greeks, it's whatever goes. And that's oh so convenient. As we said, the meta idea is if they're doing it, and whatever the, it is, fill in the blank, whatever atrocities they're committing, whatever evils and yetsaharas they're submitting to, um, so then we can't be held to a higher standard than the gods, that it completely absolves us. At this part, I don't think I said, Ezra, good, oh, Yaakov, welcome. Um, so, so we're talking about, we're doing a crash course in history. And we've been going since Bereshit Barlokim, and we've reached the Greeks, early Second Temple period, and we're talking about the Greek mentality, which is so convenient. It is a, I don't think I used this expression in my morning show when I described this idea, it's a guilt-free universe. Because the gods, and it's a logical extension, if the gods and goddesses are guilty of the most uh, heinous kind of activities and atrocious acts, then human beings can't be held to a higher standard. And we illustrated with the following. Anybody remember what, what some of these are? Zeus. Oh, yeah. Commits countless extramarital uh, affairs. That's like half Zeus and his son, his son Ares, are the epitome of violence. They killed in the millions. Right? Athena turns her foe Arachnia, famously, into a spider when she doesn't like her. Venus, Venus is the epitome of carnality. The. Uh, Dionysius is a drunkard who's also a madman. Hermes is a pathological liar, a thief. And everybody went around their business doing all of their crimes and activities without any impunity, meaning they're not punished for their, they're, they're fine, they're off the hook because they're the gods, they're in charge. And if you think about the universe this creates, it means that we're totally off the hook because if they're doing it, we're fine. I'll tell you an extension of your society. I don't know if I said this in Gemara Shir is uh, the modern Western world, which in values and in point of view is not that far away from the Greek universe. It's one of the reasons why Hanukkah today remains as relevant, as urgent, thematically, as it's ever been. Because we're confronting the same evils. Modern Western society is essentially a secular society. It's true in God we trust, that's not our money. But the, the values and the ideas are very much, are very much uh, informed by the Greeks. And um, in modern society, there are no role models. Role, most, maybe we did do this. Most role models we cut down to size. There is a um, former senator of New York, Moynihan, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who has interesting thoughts. He had an idea, he had a, he had, he had a whole school of thought, a whole, whole, and he coined a phrase, defining deviancy up. 
in which the Western society, again, I want to argue it's, it's a reflection of the age-old Greek society, what they do is they say that everybody's a deviant. Everybody's somehow weird and off and tax evaders and child molesters and, um, and corrupt and so on. And when you say that, you've effectively let the middle class, the average guy, off the hook for the exact same reason. And that's why there are universities thrive. People get PhDs and try to debunk the mythologized uh, heroes and role models of society where uh, politicians and, and um, poets and, uh, and, and anybody who's, who's, who's supposedly some kind of a role model and religious figures for sure, they love, for example, to, um, to show the evils of the various popes. Uh, they love, they, they, secular Jews love to debunk the, um, the rabbis and so on, all with the goal of saying that we're all basically in the middle miasma, the central mediocrity of the world together. If nobody's great, then we're all, we're all, we can't be held to a higher standard. Krauthammer took this idea and he took it in the other direction too. He coined the opposite phrase, defining deviancy down. Stay with me on this, it's very interesting. What it means is that effectively, um, not only do we have no role models, everybody who's supposedly some kind of moral example really isn't, they're all really corrupt. And all the bad guys, all the criminal element and so on, it's not their fault. They're just a product of their own socioeconomic disadvantaged background. You can't blame the poor criminal because he grew up in abject poverty, never got a proper education. It's society's fault. In other words, what they've done is, is you're with me so far, right? What they've done is they've said that the bad guys are not bad, the good guys are not good. We're all basically flattened the playing field. It's all equal, and we're all in this together. So the fact that I commit my own sins, my own, my own um, indiscretions, and so on, I can't really be blamed for it. It really, it's Chris, it's it's Greek, but it's also Christian because the Christian world took Neoplatonic Greek ideals and also put them into the mainstream humanity. Don't forget the Christian world were the ones who said that human beings are, it's impossible for them. We're, we're, we have no real mechanism of making tshuva. Adam sinned, we sinned, we're completely hopeless, we're futile, don't even try to repel yourself. Your only hope for salvation, believe in, in, in Yashka. You don't believe in Yashka, you have no hope for salvation. You think you can improve yourself? Good luck, buddy. You're deluded, is the general attitude. And again, all of this effectively gets you off the hook. Bernie? So basically both of those statements, either the one going up or the one going down, accomplishes the same thing. Maybe yes. Maybe that middleman feel like he's no obligated to anything. That's right. Okay. That's right. And it has some pretty severe ramifications. Yeah. Anyways, it's, it, it creates an amoral, amoral meaning like no morality society, because you can't really expect much from anybody. The Greek culture was captivating. It was rich. Uh, it was very much about men celebrating men, men's greatness. Um, the mind became elevated, the human mind and its potential to come up with brilliant algorithms, brilliant mathematics. You know that the Greeks changed the face of mathematics. There would be, and I know some of, some of you anti-math people would, would be very happy without the Greeks, but there would be no geometry without Euclid's fifth, path, fifth postulate. Uh, there'd be no, um, any, any higher mathematics without, without their innovations, science, philosophy, uh, Plato and Socrates and Aristotle changed the way the world was. You know, the Greeks thought long and hard about deep questions like why? <laughs> they, they were into this and they were capable of great, um, great heights of human intellectual achievement. I mean, they're very smart, these guys. 
Um, our tradition, the Ramah brings this down, is they got it all from? Shlomo HaMelech. The antecedents of the Greek Empire, they all, they, there's basically the Medrash, they all met with Shlomo by his court. They got certain ideas, basic, from Kohelis. Remember Stoicism in Kohelis? <coughs> Stoic, Stoicism, which is a, one of the branches of Greek philosophy. You can understand how they would get that, distort Kohelis' words when he said, Hevel, Havalim, Hakol Hevel, vanity of vanities, everything's vain. They could, you can see how that might lead to a certain kind of nihilistic Stoicism, as, as, as the Greeks would have it. They celebrated the body. The human body was now elevated. The Olympics are a direct outgrowth of the Greek obsession with human potential in, in athletics, in bodybuilding, in, in, in athletic accomplishments. Um, everything human was somehow fair game. Music and literature, all of these things thrived under the Greek influence. They created um, a physical world. Their, art, their, their accomplishments in architecture uh, were unsurpassed. They built, for the first time, elaborate theaters. The theater became a mechanism, and the Roman Empire adopted this later to, um, to inculcate their ideas in the masses. Everybody should get come to the theater as a way of mainstreaming everybody. Um, Greeks built bathhouses. The Romans would take it to, to the Romans took much of the Greek civilization to the next level. Um, what you call, anybody ever been to a Turkish bathhouse? You ever heard of such a thing? Turkish bathhouse? Well, you sit around, you, 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 lux, you luxuriate, it's more than a bathhouse, it's a whole experience, it's a sauna, it's everything else. It's not authentically Turkish, the Turks got it from the Romans, who got it from the Greeks. All of these, all of these were part of the society. And it was all about celebrating the sens sensual pleasures. Um, the, uh, the sensual pleasures were, in fact, without limit. That was, the, that was the mechanism, and why not? Again, the gods did it, we might too as well. Um, the Greek language entered the world and dominated. When Alexander the Great set out to conquer the world, he, he physically, militarily conquered the world, but it was more of a cultural um, domination that took place, and it was utterly enthralling, and the Jews fell for it. And that's, the, that's, that's our launching point today with the, the Greek Revolution. M many of the Gulluses, the diasporas that we've been subjected to, were crude and gross. We mentioned one already. They were bear-like and, and, and backwards in their, in their culture. The um, Nebuchadnezzar from Bavel, Bavel being a, a great example is, Nebuchadnezzar ate live animals. It, he, was, he was disgusting, and the Jews had no interest in being like that. Right, it is. It is against the Shevet Mitzvah's Benenoch. But he didn't have any compunction. He didn't, it didn't even efface him that he did that. The Greeks, however, had their own alternate culture that was pretty appealing. And that was a problem for the Jews. We've lost more in, in, in our history to societies that were compelling and attractive than we did to these gross societies. You know, you think about Eastern Europe. Is, it, is, not, is, is in the category in my mind with Bavel as being this kind of gross, crude, the Cossacks. They were all drunkards. So the Jews just simply kept their distance. It was, it was foul. Western Europe, with the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, had a lot that, 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 that appealed to Jews. And so there, the Jews were classically assimilated. Anybody have family who, um, in the old country, lived in places like Germany or France or England? Okay, so chances are your family was not so from... Chances are, the statistical likelihood is that they were not so from. Anybody have family that dates back to Eastern Europe? The other side of Europe, okay? Chances are your family, your ancestors were much more from. Anybody who has family that dates back to um, one of the Muslim states, South, North Africa, Middle East, 
Okay, chances are your family was even more from because the non-Jewish world around us, the Middle East, the, the Muslim-ruled countries, the Muslims, whatever you want to say about them today, were extremely from, and the Jews living in those societies were influenced. The and and, and, and like that, we we we're not we're not we never are in a vacuum, never never removed from uh, from the world around us. To the Greeks, in the end, it was about living and drinking and being merry. For the Greeks, what was beautiful was holy. To the Jews, what's holy is beautiful. We're living in many ways in diametrically opposed realities. The uh, Alexander conquers the world. He's a very interesting, colorful figure. He's a young man. He only lives 32 years altogether. Uh, and actually, as far as non-Jewish foes go, in the, in the sum total of things, was not so bad to us. He wasn't. His culture would turn out to be. Um, he conquers the world. The Gemara Yuma tells the famous story of when um, he sets out to destroy Yerushalayim, which was not characteristic. He was not a person. He was not a vindictive person by nature. And he didn't really want to destroy places. He wanted to subsume them under his control. So why did he want to destroy Yerushalayim? The Kutim again. The Kutim came to Alexander, it's always the Kutim, otherwise known as the Samaritans, went to him and told him that there's a people who don't like you. They don't like you because they don't want to build a statue of you in their holy temple. That's true. We didn't want to build a statue of Alexander, and Alexander insisted that every nation under his, under his dominance built a statue to himself as a way of establishing his hegemony. Um, and it's true that we wouldn't build a statue to Alexander, not because it was Alexander, not because it was Greek, but because we didn't build statues, period. And that was foreign to most, to anybody in the world outside of Judaism in these days. Very. Samaritans were Jewish, like Jewish from descent, right? Well, they had converted and became part of the Jews, but at this phase in history, Ezra has already said we can't eat their bread, and progressively we'll see through history the Samaritans will be written up to the point that intermarriage will be forbidden with them, and eventually, after Rabbi Meir discovers them worshiping a pigeon up on their mountain on Har Grizim, which is just above Shechem, um, they, the only, this is the only time in history that such a thing will take place. They're the only people who collectively converted to Judaism who many centuries later, their conversion was retroactively nullified. The Rambam says today, Kutim are worse than Jews. Just to set the record straight. At this point in history, they're still counted as Jews, but at this point, they're living separately. They're not really practicing most of the mitzvahs. They're anti-rabbinic. They're anti, um, anti. And therefore, they're constantly um, setting our enemies against us. Their issue was oral law, correct? Like that was what separated them from... Um, not exclusively, no. You're thinking maybe that's Stukim? Maybe, okay, fine. I was just wondering, because like, why would, if they are Jewish and they do have some Jewish wars, why would they go about taking down... So it's important to distinguish your groups. The Kutim were never really authentically. Their conversion was suspect all along, right? right? That's one group. Um, you're maybe referring to now the, the emergence. We've already seen this. We talked about this recently. Um, and that's pretty much everything you need to know about Daniel. Um, the, um... Oh, yeah, hi, welcome. The, um... Ignore that last statement. The, uh, the, the Jews had now become sectarian, right. and they split up the way the Prushim and the Stukim, and the, we'll, we'll talk about them too. Okay. And, and it, it's interesting, yeah. When you say retroactively... Um, Nullified their conversion. That means that anyone that merited... Uh, a Tzuki, uh, a Kuti. Right, a Kuti. Not a Tzuki, a Shomroni or a Kuti. So that means that you could have a, a man from the, from Yehuda mm -hmm. married a uh, Shomroni, and that never happened though. 
that was by the time they got to the phase in Rabbi Abahu's generation. Anybody heard of Rabbi Abahu? His son, did he do kibudav? Let me tell you about it. Lamada, 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 we're all learning kedusha, right? So we learn all these great stories about Rabbi Abahu. So, um, so Rabbi Abahu and his generation, they were the ones who came to nullify their conversion retroactively. By that point, intermarriage had long been prohibited with the Kutim. So nobody was married to them. Nobody, they lived separately. They were antagonistic to Jews at every phase in history, so nobody wanted anything to do with them. Even, at the, even directly after the conversion? No, it was a process. Uh, so I'm saying, at this point in history, they're already separate. There's already a decree not to eat their bread, but there's, no, yet, there's not yet a decree not to intermarry with them, and they're more of a, just um, a negative, sub, subversive force in history. What started that process? Oh, they were never Jewish. The conversion was never L'Shem Shemaim. They're referred to in the Tanakh. They're from the Bible, right? They're, they're really date back. The Tanakh calls them um, Gere Arayos. They were converts of lions. They converted for the exact wrong reasons. We should never take converts who were insincere. They were afraid of the local lions, and they converted. That was the problem from the get-go. Um, but, but theoretically, someone that, if someone got married before they, before they stopped intermarrying, it's a hypothetical question. It wasn't realistic. At least one of them must have married nope. in, uh, right when they converted. Not apparently. No, no, no. Uh, right when they converted. No, by then there were no Jews in Eretz Israel. Their conversion takes place after the destruction of the first temple. So, uh, yeah, not relevant. Alexander the Great comes in. He's going to destroy Yerushalayim. Shimon Tzadik, who was never named that, our host, lives, we're across the street from the grave of Shimon Tzadik, um, street is named for him. The, uh, <coughs> he was not, by the way, Shimon ben Chonia was his name. Why is he called a tzaddik? If you would have called him Shimon tzaddik, he would have winced. He would have said, not me. Uh, uh. He wouldn't take such an arrogant name. Why is he called Shimon tzaddik? Because he has, he has a later descendant, a grandson, who's Shimon ben Chonio also, because his son, Shimon's son was Chonio, and Chonio's son was Shimon. So it goes around, comes around. Uh, and... Um, the second Shimon ben Chonia was really not a tzaddik. He went up building a, a version of the base of Mikdash down in Egypt. Either that or one of his descendants did. That's some evidence around that. Anyway, so to distinguish the grandfather from the grandson, they started referring to later rabbis referred to the earlier Shimon as Shimon tzaddik. Shimon tzaddik makes the decision to leave Yerushalayim with his entourage. He dresses in the Bikdei Kahuna, in the clothes of the, of the, of the Kohen Gadol, which is Usser, you're not allowed to do that, but it was a Horash Sha'ah, the Gemara and the Pushkin discussed why was he able to do this and how he did this. One opinion is that it wasn't actual Big Day Kahuna, it wasn't really the Kohen, Kohen Gadol's clothing. He was not yet Kohen Gadol yet, he would later become Kohen Gadol. Um, and he exits and he goes out to an area not far from the airport today in, um, in Antipas and he meets Alexander the Great. And there, everybody's ready for a massive bloody confrontation, but no! When Alexander, mounted on horseback, sees the face of Shimon Tzadik, instead of attacking him, he dismounts, gets down. You getting this, Ezra? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. He gets, down, he gets down, down, prostrates. He starts. He starts. He starts okay. He starts bowing down, and everybody around him is saying, "King, what are you doing here? This is the enemy. What are you bowing down to him for?" He says, "You don't realize. I have won every single battle I've waged. I've conquered the world." And every single time I went to battle, I saw that man. Gemara says he was an angel that came down to him. He said, and I knew when I saw that man, I was going to win the battle. And here he is. Um, there's, they're not quite reconciled. And when they start to discuss things, um, he asks 
Shimon, you know, I hear you're not going to build a statue to us in your temple. Shimon says, I think the greatest line of diplomacy and manipulation ever. He says, to paraphrase the Gemara, can it be that in the house where we pray for the welfare of the king, you, that you actually seek to destroy that house? And he utterly wins over Alexander, charms him. And, um, and after the discussion ensues, Alexander says, well, where do I get this idea from that you're actually working against us? He said, I don't know. I think they're enemies of the Jews out there who are telling you lies. And he says, uh, paraphrasing a classic from, uh, from Megillah, who, is this? who are these people? And, and Shimon says, why? Your friends, your advisors, the Kutim. At which point, Alexander has all the local Kutim killed and goes up to Hargrizim and destroys their Mikdash. And uh, although they're not done, for, they're not done forever, unfortunately, they'll, they'll return in, 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 with a vengeance in later generations. Um, Alexander comes to Yerushalayim with Shimon, and Alexander says, so let's put up a statue to me in the base of Mikdash. And Shimon, Baruch Hashem, when you're Hashem Shemayim, and you lead your life uh, for Hashem, so Hashem gives you special siyat and Shmaya, special assistance, um, and he somehow manages this one. I don't know how he pulls it off. He says, oh, well, actually, we're not going to build a statue of you because that's forbidden according to our holy Torah. But I'll tell you what, we're going to go make a deal. And he says, every Kohen who has a child this year will name his son Alexander. Alexander. And thus it was. And suddenly, Alexander became a Jewish name. Tell Alex. Uh, he's not here right now. Uh, and from that point on, we, we find Jews naming their kids Alexander. Now, the... Um, they named a great city in Egypt for the man Alexander. Then he died. Uh, and then the Greek Revolution starts to set in. Because Alexander heralded the arrival of the Greeks. The Greeks start, the Greek culture creeps in. And the Jews, remember, were already in a state of free fall decline. That was the state, that was what we've talked about in the last few days of class. Jews have already been in decline. There's a weakening. That's why I remember the Anshik Nesagnola said a lot of decrease for us. Mutza and the Easter doing business on Shabbos and many other things to strengthen observance. But they're fighting a bit, an uphill battle that's, ex that's increasingly difficult. And suddenly you have this incredibly appealing, attractive, seductive new way of life called Hellenism. And the Jews are not very, not all the Jews at least, are very successful in, in, in uh, resisting it. The Kutim are around there and influence Jews start to stray after the Kutim, they stray after the, after the Greeks. Now I should tell you this, the, um, yeah, we'll get to this. The next Gadol, Shimon the Great is the last of the survivors of the 120 members of the Great Assembly. They never replaced them. They retired the number, to use baseball terminology. They retired the number, and after this you have the Great Sanhedrin, you have the Gadolim. The Shimon's disciple was a singular disciple by the name of Antigonos Ishsocho, but notice the heavily Greek name. Even the Gdolim started to take on Greek names. Greek language started to dominate the world. Jews spoke Greek at this point. They didn't speak Lashon Kodesh as the vernacular, as the, as, as the common language. And you know, and we see this in history too. When you have the language, the culture seeps in. Uh, the opposite is true when in, let's say, from Sephardi communities, they spoke Ladino, right? That was a distinctively Jewish language, so then the Jews stayed strong. In Ashkenazi societies, when a new, when a new language would emerge in the Middle Ages that we referred to the other day, called Yiddish, the combination of High German and, and, and Hebrew and other, other languages too mixed in, um, so then the Jews stayed strong. When you hear people talk about preserving Yiddishkeit, Jews preserving Yiddishkeit, so they were talking about preserving Torah, because it's the language that you preserve it with. Um, the, and we'll see in the modern era how the new language, Ivrit, 
um, was actually a force of the secular world and used cynically as a tool to get the religious kids out of their religious families. And for the first few decades of the 20th century, it was one of the most successful things ever, ever done. Um, parents would send their kids to school, they'd pick up this new language, Ivrit, and they came home not religious anymore. And that was the pattern in, you name it. I mean, there was no such thing as Haredi and Dati back then, right? What they call the, the modern Orthodox or the ultra-Orthodox. You had groups like that along the spectrum, but in both spectrums, the kids started speaking the language, and the language became a tool of assimilation. And that was absolutely the case and I don't know if these themes are starting to sound very, very relevant, very much of our day, but that was what the Hashmonaim, the heroes of the story that we're about to tell, um, that we got to this Baruch Hashem before Hanukkah, um, the, the heroes of our stories, this is what they were fighting. It was, it was the cultural revolution that crept in and honestly has never left. You know, we celebrated Hanukkah then and we celebrate it today because we're still fighting the same battle to a large degree of assimilation. But much more so, because Vietnam was that. I mean, the Greeks have been around for now over yeah, 2,000. Uh, like, like, oh, we won, but we didn't. We never win. did. We never did. And I'm going to build on this soon. We're going to get to this. Are you, that was a question? Did a comment? Approximately, what is the English Yeah, well, if you look at your time, if anybody still has, one of the reasons I gave these out at the very beginning was to give you some perspective. But if you look at your timeline, you have it. Okay, you know. All right. So I, I passed Yaakov. I passed these things out at the beginning. So we are on Tigrish Isoch. I actually have these dates. It's um, 34th, 54th. 34th, 54th in the Jewish calendar, which means nothing to anybody here. I realize that's why I gave it over facetiously. And I'll tell you what it is in the in the in the secular calendar. It's about 306, 260, 260 that range in the before the common era of the Christian calendar. And again, that's the Jewish date. It's not the secular academic Christian date uh, that's out there. The, um, oh, I haven't done the sects. That's what we're doing now. Bertie, your question is coming up right now. Antigonus is the first generation to know no prophecy. Remember, we got rid of prophecy yesterday. And at the same time, in the confusion that ensued, without prophecy, suddenly you didn't have direct word of God. And that's when sectarianism was born. Because before this generation, no group would ever deign to rise up and say, hey, we've got different ideas, and they're also Jewish. Because everybody would just turn to the prophets who were alive and say, huh, really? And they would say, no, and that was the end of it. But now you didn't have prophets. So you had new groups who came around, and at the same time you had new groups coming along, you had these attractive Hellenistic ideas to seduce people, and it was a potent cocktail. Now, Antigonus had, he was the one in Pirkei Avos who teaches that you should not, you should be like a student who's serving your Rebbe, not to, law menas pras, not to receive a reward. How, how, that, that, you know, not to receive a reward. But that was a dangerous idea. And in Avos de Rabbi Nassan, we learned that there were two guys, they weren't even his disciples. They were students sitting in the back row who got half the sheer because they were spaced out. Have you know people like that? Who were spaced out during the rest of the class? Um, their names were Tzadok and Baitos. And they took half notes, and they said, did he just say that you should be a student who's serving the rabbi not to get reward? Does that mean there's no reward and punishment in the universe? Uh-huh. And they, two, they added two and two together, and they got 22. And they, uh, and they started making all kinds of crazy, wacky kinds of conclusions, including that there's no reward and punishment in the universe. There's no olam haba. In fact, we're living for today. And the conclusions were actually very convenient because they permitted them to start to follow the ways of the Greeks. And it was probably, in my mind, the quintessential time where people 
threw their arrows and afterwards drew their bullseyes. One of, my, one of the major things. Because they really wanted to be Greeks. But they had a good Jewish guilty conscience and they had probably good Jewish mothers who made them feel guilty. So they couldn't just walk away from Torah and observance wholesale. So in order to make it more palatable and to make it possible that they could do this, they created a Greek variation of Judaism and they called them different names Sudukim, Baitusim, or as we say in English, the, the Baitusim or the Sadducees. And it's a whole long story and well, actually it's sad, you see. The story of these groups were, uh, they were breakaways and they had a philosophy to justify it. Their goals through history was to pursue wealth and power. They mocked the other group, the mainstream dominant majority Jews. They started, they gave them, hold the thought for just a second, Bernie, get this, get this idea too. And then they invented a new name. And, they, and the Stuki were the ones who came up with the name Prushim. In English, it's rendered as Pharisees. And it's another weapon of domination. Uh, it's another weapon. You know why? When you give it a label, you make it, you, you, you reduce it. You make it smaller than what it is. So, well, there's groups, there's different groups. There's, there's Sadducees, there's Pharisees. Choose, it's a smorgasbord. It's the same idea that modern sects use, reform, reconstructionist, conservative, and they were the ones who invented the term orthodox. I'm not orthodox, I hope you're not either. Because orthodox is simply somebody who responds, who's, the term actually isn't put down, it's somebody who's like st starchy and, and, and inflexible in his ways, they're so orthodox is really what the, what the word comes from. And it's a label to, to imply that we're also a sect, but I, I don't think we're a sect. And one of the things I'm trying to argue in this entire class is that we're as mainstream as the Prushim were back in their day and as the Nevi'im were back in their day and as the Avos were back in their day. And if any of the authentic traditional Jews were, would be reborn or take a time machine back until today, they would look around all the various so-called Judaisms that exist in the world and they would say, this isn't Judaism. This is Presbyterian Christianity, if they're going to reform synagogue, uh, or, or ver other variations, and they'd come, they'd come to, I don't know, let's say they'd walk into Derech, and they'd come and they'd sit down at any of our classes, and they'd say, oh, okay, this is Judaism. Now, I, now this, I feel at home here. I can recognize this. This is, oh, you guys keep Shabbos? Okay, we keep Shabbos too. Right? And so by calling them Prushim, they basically marginalized them and said, oh, you're just another group too. But the Prushim were the normal Jews. They were the, they were the mainstream. Um, can't Orthodox also mean yeah, but it had it had an unmistakable um, it had it had a stigma to it of being of being stuck in the old way. In the, it, yes, but it had that it had that. You're so orthodox. Can't you think out of the box? But now, if you if you if you use the word orthodox, it depends on how it's being used. My point is that any label is a diminishment. In other words, I just consider myself Jewish, trying to practice Judaism in the mainstream way that. The, the normal core of Jews have always been living their Jewish lives. And the other groups really can't say that with any intellectual honesty. Um, just on an earlier point, you said that like, so after prophecy, uh, people decided that they, they, now they had this ability to say things that, that and, and they couldn't be opposed because there's no prophecy. There's no prophecy to put them down, exactly. They had Chachami, but they, but they attacked the Chachami mercilessly. They tried to delegitimate their authority. I understand, uh, like, like, things like the Sadoukman thing, and, like, how those, some of those things really don't make sense with basic dreams that things are already set up, but to an extent, now that the prophets were there, can we have also assumed that some things got pushed to the side that maybe it had legitimacy because they couldn't have been proved, so... 
I don't think so. Given the fact that Torah is a, is, is a Masora, is a, is, a, is a tradition, it's a heritage. But there's definitely altercations. Within Torah? Well, within three periods of time. We're going to get to argument. We haven't, there's no argument in the world at this point. At this point, Torah is still unified, and there's not one machlokis. There's no Hillel, there's no Shammai, there's no Beis Hillel, Beis Shammai. There's no argument in the world, which is reflecting a unified central tradition that goes back to Arsina. Right now still. And we're right on the verge of, changing, of seeing that change. So it's, it's an utterly relevant question that you're asking at this point. The, um, it's at this point, at around this time, as the Greeks take over, and I'm not getting into, if you notice, I'm skipping a lot of the politics. In some of the other history classes, you'll learn all about the, Sel- the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And the different, the, actually, the Greek empire, after Alexander, the Greek empire broke into four different units, and there are a lot of political players. I'm going to try to de-emphasize them, because they're less interesting and relevant in history. Um, but I am going to say that one of the Ptolemies, Ptolemy in Egypt was a bibliophile. He built the greatest library, it was all burned down and lost, but he built one of the greatest libraries ever known to human beings. And he wanted to collect every single book, and his great frustration in life was that even if he could get a copy of the Tanakh, he couldn't understand it because it was written necessarily in Lashon Kodish, which he couldn't understand nor could describe. And he was willing to pay a lot of money to get a translation. Now it's usher to translate the Tanakh. And our scroll is an usher book. It's usher to translate the Talmud too. Uh, but our school has a header uh, for doing what they're doing. But you should know that Mikardin, you're not allowed to render this. And because, because there's a prohibition to let our holy Torah, out of the, as it were, get the cat out of the bag and put him into the non-Jewish hands, in their hands, Torah becomes toxic. And it's a whole long story, and you look at the details, that fascinating story, it's rendered in the Gemara Megillah, where he brings down 70 Kohani, who are also coming to Chachamim, and he has a big celebration and puts them on an island, each one of them in a luxurious room, where they're all allowed to sit and write the translation. And it's unclear in the Gemara Megillah whether they just translated the five books of Moshe or they translated the entire Tanakh. But what is clear is that the miracles took place, and they translated the into what's called the Septuagint, or the Targum Shivim, 72 of them really, um, they translated it, making the exact same 13 variations, and for one of the most fascinating Gemaras, you'll look up the Gemara and Megillah discusses it, they changed things that in the hands of the non-Jews, they'd misunderstand them, and it would lead to all kinds of problems. So they all, through Ruach HaKodesh, had inspiration to make those 13 changes. Uh, Ptolemy has this great celebration, and the Jews, have a new day of mourning. It happened on the 8th of Tevis, uh, in a month from now. Um, later on, with, uh, that was uh, the 9th of Tevis was the day that Ezra and Nehemiah died, and, and the 10th of Tevis was ultimately a, a sad day uh, having to do with the second temple's destruction, and we combined all of those fast days into one day. We'll be fasting in a few weeks on Asara of Tevis, on the 10th day of Tevis, but one of the reasons is because of this calamity. Because now you have the Holy Torah, which is the, I mean, Realize this, the Torah is Hashem's everything. It's His will for us in this world. It's the secrets of the universe. And now that you're letting this incredibly powerful, toxic thing into the hands of Madonna, as she studies Kabbalah, because she wouldn't be able to study Kabbalah if there was no Targum Shivim. You're, and, and, and as, I'm sorry, she's not Madonna, she's Esther now, as she wears her tefillin, right? And, and so on, so you're, you realize the, the, the demons that are created every time that somebody does this? Do you realize that out of this you can create whole new religions? And they did. In fact, there would be no new religion without the Septuagint. The religion, of course, Christianity, Christianity would never have existed Islam. had they never let the cat out of the bag. So we, we fast on such things. One of the ways we always 
comfort ourselves is saying, okay, they got the written law. But the written law is only part of the law. There's also the oral tradition. Without the oral tradition, they don't know what they're talking about. So we always comfort ourselves with the fact that they couldn't have access to the real uh, heart and soul of Judaism, which is Chazal, and that's what makes the modern-day phenomenon of the translations of everything and the internetification of everything, where information is a click away, um, terribly dangerous. And perhaps a sign of the coming of Mashiach, because Mashiach's got to come before this gets too dangerous and too late. You know, okay, so, as, why, as, so why was Archibald given a header to the Because there was, uh, the, 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 the gist of the Archibald header, we're, we're getting in too many, too many uh, these are such juicy tangents, because they're all so relevant to us, but I really should c- c- continue and try to, try to cover some ground now. Um, but the, um, there, there were already a lot of corrupt translations out that it was time to set the record straight. It was now effectively, you're already getting a lot of translations, um, so at least there should be one translation that, that is kosher and definitive. That's the basis of it. Um, I mean, it's, it's hardly a proud achievement, but you know, they, they do set the record straight. They've done a massive accomplishment, but it's not the way it should be. The uh, generations decline, and now you got what Bernie anticipated, the first machlokas ever. There was never an argument before. And it's a sign of the times. It's a sign that now we're going away from our Sinai, we're assimilating more, and even up to the top, the leaders of the generation are the ones in Machlokis. After Antigonus Isolcho dies, we begin a new phase in history, what's called the Zugos. And you all know this if you know the first chapter in Pirkei Avos, so you know the Zugos, the pairs. They will be, in each generation, the leaders of the Jews. There are actually five of them. We're, we're the only five pairs of leaders. The first two are um, Yossi ben Yoezer and Yossi ben um, Yochanan. You got it. Uh, right? and, and they were the first of the pairs, and they led. One of, one, one of them was the figurehead called the Nasi. The other one was called the Avbeistin. They led, but they had a disagreement. And can you imagine what it must have been like in that first generation when they really didn't know and they got a machlokas and there was no precedent for machlokas. Nobody in life had ever had a machlokas before and suddenly they weren't sure about a very technical issue. Do you, would you, uh, you'll be my model, um, for the korban chagiga on Yantif, do you lean, you put smicha but not smicha like rabbinic ordination smicha, but do you lean on the korban? Is it too much, which some say yes. Um, or not, because it's too much exertion to, 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 to make on a yantif where you're not supposed to exercise. And that was machlokas. And they never came to peace. They simply had two different opinions. And they were agonized over this whole thing. How could there be machlokas? How could there be doubt? But there was. The same machlokas repeated itself in every generation of zugos, of the pairs who led the Jews, down to Hillel and Shammai, and then it went viral. And from that point in history, we got three arguments, and then there were 18 arguments, and then there were a bunch of arguments, but I'm ahead of myself. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about the arguments. But you see the in, in, intrusion of arguments, of machlokis, among the Jews as a sign of the decline and increasing ambiguity. And suddenly you start to understand, and in my Gemara class, we spent a lot of time, and I, I, we're not all together, so I'm going to repeat this. In Gemara, we spent a lot of time talking about the development of the oral tradition. You know, the oral law was meant to be oral, ironically enough. And it's usher to write down the oral tradition so that this book... It's totally awesome. You know that? This is a completely forbidden book. But the Pasuk says in Mishli, sometimes you have to break the Torah to keep the Torah. And Chazal in their wisdom with the oral tradition understood, if you're not going to write this down, you're going to lose it. And that's why they started very, very gradually. It was really the first people to write anything down at all uh, was not even the first generation of Zugos. It was the next generation, Yeshua ben Prachi and, and, and Yudah ben Tabai. And they only write... 
No, scratch that. Not Yehuda. You mixed that up. It's Yeshuv and Prachi. You should correct me. And uh, and Nitai Harabeli, Nitai, whose mountain we might have hiked down when we hiked in the north, right? The Arbel. So Nitai Harabeli, who um, they start making cryptic notes that I think the best way we could describe it. And again, you're not supposed to write things down, but they wrote down cryptic notes because the oral tradition had become so vast that it was like bullet point notes, as if you're lecturing and you need to be reminded of your key points. That's what that's that was the original written form of the oral Torah, and that will evolve. So all of these dynamics are happening. This is all early to mid Second Temple period. The corruption and the intrigue will increase. Hellenized Jews will, are going to start to buy for power. They win favor with, uh, with, the, with the local Greek authorities. They start collecting steep chat taxes. There's some terrible stories that I'm skipping of massacres of Jews. Uh, there's terrible persecutions. And now we see the, the, the increasing decrees. Bernie? Um, because of these the the expression, and you can find it, for example, at the end of the first chapter of Yavamos in Mishnah, when there's a machlokus l'shem shemaim, when it's done for the sake of heaven, that means you've got to have two people who really know what they're talking about. They really are sincerely, sincerely arguing their case and have psukim and svaros and good things to back up their claims. Um, we say Elu Elu Divre Elukim Chaim. These and these are the words of a living God. And they both are legitimate. That's why we preserve them both lovingly in the Mishnah, in the Brises. As we're saying that they're they're both founded on something. And in our Ba'avanoseinu Harabim and our great transgressions, we as a generation aren't worthy enough to have clarity, and therefore we bring them both down. Now it's true. At the end of the day, Torah is meant to be vibrant and relevant. And so we got a paskin. That's why the Pesach generally, with, ex- with, with six exceptions, follows Hillel against Shammai. And there are rules for how to paskin between machlokas, so the Jews can actually apply law to life. But in the back of our mind, there's also the, mach- the other view. And we, re- 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 we retain the, the other view. Uh, there's an opinion that the other view will, will, will somehow be relevant when, when the Mashiach comes, will come out in a certain way. Um, there's also there's an idea of being Yotzi Koladeo. Sometimes people want to be machmir and... and, and Observe both views. Maybe this is right. Maybe that's right. But it's a general sign of the declining times that we're still a part of. The um, our way of understanding history is we stood in the shadow of Har Sinai. We stood by Mount Sinai. That was an elated time in history. The peak of history again was when was the highest point in history. Beis Hamikdash. Shlomo's building the Beis Hamikdash, and it's been downhill ever since. Nisakatnu Hadoros. Every generation is 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 on a lesser level than a lower level than the previous generation. Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a crazy man, uh, was actually not the villain of the Hanukkah story. The truest villains of the Hanukkah story were actually assimilated Jews. They did far worse uh, atrocities against Kalal Yisrael than the Greeks. The Greeks were just being Greek. You know, they, they, but the Jews, you know, there's nothing like a Jewish apostate. Why are the Jewish apostates always worse? What's the psychological profile? Why is an apostate wor- worse than an, an, a non-Jewish anti-Semite? They, they know us. They know us. And they know our weaknesses. And they know our weaknesses. And they're also threatened by us. They're also threatened by us. This whole dynamic, we talked about this too. When I be- started to become religious, I went to, I went to college in Berkeley. Um, all my friends were Jewish, assimilated Jews, but all Jewish, except for Scott the Zephyrnude, who was definitely not Jewish. Um, and when I started taking baby, baby, baby steps towards anything in Judaism, at the point I was going to become a reform rabbi, um, my friends sort of looked at that critically. Why are you doing that? Because they were threatened by it. Clearly, I see that in retrospect. 
by far the most important person to everything was Scott the Surfer dude. Yeah, dude. He loved it. He couldn't hear that. He wanted to hear all the things. It wasn't threatening to him. So I think you have something of that dynamic now. The villains are people like Yasom. Jason's not a nice name for a Jewish boy. Menelaus and others, they'll come in. Jason is not a nice name for a Jewish boy. The famous Jason was one of the villains here of the story. I'm not going into it if you want. Again, all this is kind of condensed version of longer things. Send me an e- Nobody's taking me up on this. I, I, I'm welcoming the, your emails if you want us. If you want me to go into anything in greater depth, I got all this in an elaborated version. I'm just trying to give you a taste of history. So let me continue. The Greeks will make many harsh decree, decrees against Klal Yisrael. They include most mitzvahs become outlawed. Jews are not allowed to offer korbanos. They come in and enter the base of Mikdash. This part you know is famous. They impurify it. They start offering chazir pigs, swine as, as korbanos. They bring in open znus, open immodesty, right there in the Holy of Holies. The Greeks significantly outlaws, outlaws they, they emphasize three points of observance. Do you know what they are? We talk about them all the time. Hanukkah, you're going to have a thousand Debrei Torah in, this, in the coming weeks. What are the three categories? What are they? No, no, no. The three areas of observance. They outlaw Shabbos. Shabbos. Shabbos, the Moadim, which is Rosh Chodesh. They, you, you can't determine the, the new months. You don't know when the, when the holidays fall. And Bris Mila. And Bris Mila. Significantly, when Chazal in their wisdom, infinite wisdom, because uh, it was all divinely inspired, um, established Hanukkah, they made it deliberately so that the eight days of Hanukkah, eight days corresponding to the Bris Mila, always coincide with Shabbos and always correspond with Rosh Chodesh. Huh. Ha! That's, it. That's in your face, Greeks. Wait, what did they do if they couldn't uh, respect the Jews? Like, that whole generation just didn't have it? No. The Jews, the Gemara talks about many great stories of the Jews being were a tenacious bunch. So we found ways of doing it secretly. When they wouldn't let us bring our Bikurim to Yushalayim, our first fruits to Yushalayim, so the Jews, um, some, they, they, um, they came with big, they used to have, the, one of the sweets was uh, fake cakes, and they used to hide the Bikurim inside the fake cakes. When we couldn't bring wood, this is all Gemara and Tainis. When they couldn't bring wood up to for the for the fires, the the Aracha in the in the actual base of Mikdash, so they they came like they were manual laborers carrying ladders, and the ladders was actually used later on. They dismantled the ladders and used them as wood. Um, they forbade learning Torah. Bate Medrash were destroyed. Uh, Sifrei Torah were burned. Houses no longer could have doors on them because they knew that the Matovu Oalecha Yaakov, how great your tents are. Jews were private, we're modest. We're not going to have children if the doors are open. We can't do things in intimacy that are going to be on public display. Um, Tfila and the mikveh, immersing in the mikveh became um, outlawed. A husband whose wife was found to have toiled in the mikveh, the husband was killed, and the wife and the children were enslaved and then turned into prostitutes to the one who, uh, who, gave them, who turned them in. Um, Hashem made miracles. Mikvahs opened up miraculously underneath people's houses in secret. I thought, this is after this? This is all before, this is all before the Hashmonaim. Okay? Uh, a girl who became, a basula who became betrothed in marriage, the law was now she had to cohabit with the local hegemon, the local Greek, Greek, Roman, uh, the Greek governors. So Jews stopped marrying. And Greeks would have their way with the single girls. And without getting into too much into detail, I, I don't want to go into the war stories. We can, and I do in my other history class, but I'm skipping it here. Matis Yao and his five sons, we go the five sons, and the, the attack in Modi'in, and it's courageous, and it's, it's, it's wonderful, and they were heroes to some degree, but they were also flawed. 
Um, and we don't really focus on the people. If you notice in our tefillah, we talk about uh, we talk about the victory and we focus on Hashem's light in a very dark time. When you read the stories about this time, and actually reading Chazal, it really sounds like the Holocaust. People went into, they had to fight partisans in the forest. You know, they had to, I mean, it was really, all the stories that, you, that, you, that emerged from the Shoah really were like this. And when the Jews came back, and it was several years, it was not like it was a sudden victory. There were phases of victory. You know, when Yehuda comes in, Yehuda Maccabee, who eventually leads the, leads the family, um, and they purify the base of Mikdash, and they find the flask of oil. Um, that's just a temporary gain. And it's very short-lived. Of the 90 years of sovereignty that this family, the Chashmayim, will have, most of the leaders will actually, and this is the greatest irony, turn to Hellenism themselves and become some of the enemies. So what? So what are we celebrating? We're not celebrating this moment in history as a victory, as a military uh, greatness. Secular Jews in Israel, they love the military aspect. That's what they talk about. Oh, and, and, and tour guides, secular tour guides actually can retrace through the book of Maccabim. They can retrace the places where they had the various battles. And this is where uh, Demetrius uh, fought Yehuda. And this is where, which is utterly besides the point. They, missed, they, they, they lost the forest through the trees. They missed the major themes of history. It's not about the people. Today it's all a cult of personality and narcissism, right? But, but once upon a time, once upon a time, it was about seeing Hashem's golden light coming through the darkness. That's why we light the candles. Go look at Bamin Madlik in the three pages of, of Gemara. They talk about Hanukkah. Bernie, last question. Um, just backing up again to uh, when you were talking about that, um, like the, the Greeks, right, were like have a relationship with like the young Jewish women. Did that mean, did that start a new generation of Jewish children that I guess weren't Jewish? No, because Baruch Hashem was finite enough that the Hash, the revolution of, of the Hashmonaim made it possible to observe Judaism again. And it's not a, we're not home free. As I said again, it's a spotty time with the, and now you have a struggle between the, the Hellenized Jews and the Tzedukim against the mainstream rabbis in Prushim. And, and, and we're going to see now that's what's unfolding in history. It's good guys versus bad guys, and the, the decrees will, will continue, and there's some terrible, ter, terrible times. But at least it's possible now for Jews to get married properly and have children. I'm saying that, like, the. Like if, if, I'm saying like the ch children that would come out from these relations would still be Jewish. They were Jewish. Well, right. If the mother's Jewish, technically, the child's Jewish. In general, but like that, did that create a new generation of Jews that, like, obviously they probably weren't practicing Jews or anything like that, but in that type of like, They were raised in a Jewish household with Torah and mitzvahs and they could be accepted and, and incorporated all together. And the, the, the women, the women were not high of kares. Ordinarily, intermarriage is, is, a, is a sin punishable. It's kares because you cut yourself off from the Jewish people, but in this case, they were raped, they were forced, it was not their, not, they, they were anusim, and as such, they were not guilty. Let me just, let me, last, last word. We, on Hanukkah then, we focus almost, you know, we, we, we focus mainly, mainly on HaKadosh Baruch Hu, on His kindness to us. We give thanks and praise to Hashem. That's the true Thanksgiving, as uh, other Thanksgivings come and go. Um, they wait for the next year. They, they, they wait for the next year, Lashana Acheris, because they realize that the time, it's not just a one time kind of a deal. It's, in fact, an eternal uh, day where we're always struggling against the forces of assimilation that are around us. And as I said before, you know, those are as potent and, and, and on fire as they've ever been. Um, there really is no definitive victory at this, at this point. Um, the book of Hashmonaim was not composed by Chazal. It was likely that the author was at Stuki himself. And may minimize the fame of the miracle, but we bring it back to its to its proper grandeur. Uh, tomorrow we'll talk about the generations of the Hashmonaim and some important developments in the mid to late Second Temple. Good evening. Um.